Well, good morning, everyone. You can remain standing as we will start our time by reading from our text today. It's a pleasure to be here with you all today as we worship our God and as we continue our study in the letter to Timothy. Today we'll be covering 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Let us begin there by reading. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings, for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. This is the word of God. Please be seated. As many of you already know, I am a native Texan, born and raised in the DFW Metroplex. And like any good Texan growing up, every school day began with the same ritual. That ritual started as someone would come on over the intercom system, instruct every student to rise, and like all the other students, I would then follow along as we first pledged allegiance to the United States, something I assume pretty much all of us can get behind. Like all students, I would then turn my attention to the Texas flag and pledge my allegiance to the state of Texas, by simply stating, honor the Texas flag, I pledge allegiance to the Texas one and indivisible. And at the end of that pledge of allegiance, a familiar tune would come on over that intercom system again, and I, like every other student in school, would join with a hearty singing of our state song, Texas, Our Texas. A song that began with the words, Texas, our Texas, all hail the mighty state. Texas, our Texas, so wonderful, so great. And would end with the cry, God bless you, Texas, and keep you brave and strong, and may you grow in power and worth throughout the ages long. I can proudly say I could still sing that song to you today, because it was such a regular part of my childhood, such a regular part of my upbringing. But I'll save you from hearing that song in full, and I will acknowledge that this ritual may sound weird to some of you, maybe a couple of you as so many things from Texas sound weird to those outside of Texas. I acknowledge that. But even if that sounds odd to begin every single day as a child, being reminded of the fact that you are first and foremost a Texan, I think most of us can still step back and appreciate just the value that, that certain things like that can play, the value of pledges, the value of, of shared heritage, and even a shared song. For as silly as it might sound to outsiders, as a kid growing up saying those words, singing that song, I was daily reminded that I was part of something bigger than myself. That I was a Texan, and that was supposed to mean something. I was reminded that regardless of the differences I had with those around me in class, that we shared that identity. And if you were raised there, you understand that you were taught that that really did mean something. It was supposed to be powerful, for it spoke of your identity, and it, it called for this daily practice of citizenship. As believers, we do not necessarily share any pledges of allegiance, although I did pledge allegiance to the Iwana flag a lot as a kid. I don't really know if I was as passionate about that one as I was to Texas, but it was a pledge nonetheless. 
Historically, we, of course, as believers, have had various creeds and other practices that we share. And even though we do not still practice some of those in our own context today, there are certain routines that we are given, disciplines that we're commanded to practice daily, that look strange in foreign outsiders, but to those of us who understand their meaning can appreciate them for all their worth and all their power. For the disciplines we've been given by God through his word are are disciplines that, like a pledge, like a song, remind us of foundational truths of who we are, are intended to remind you that you are something bigger than yourself, that that identity is more important than any other passion you might hold to. One of the greatest examples of this is the discipline of prayer. For as we follow the prayers that we were given in scripture, specifically the instruction that Jesus gives us, and even today in the words of Paul, We are given this command, this practice, that again to outsiders can seem overly simplistic, a bit naive. And yet as we practice them as a community, and as we understand them for all their power, we come to understand exactly why Paul begins here. For we see prayer as not just some passing ritual, but as the most powerful weapon we have in the warfare in which we are engaged. We come to understand exactly what Paul is instructing Timothy today, and that is the fact that prayer, as common as it might be and as silly as it might seem to outsiders, is utterly essential to our own obedience and to ensure that we remain faithful as God's children, as soldiers of Christ. In the text today, specifically what I hope us to see is that this prayer is in fact essential. First, the practical hope of peace Second, for the growth of our own personal godliness. And finally, it is essential for the sake of maintaining a proper gospel focus, which is the mission of every single Christian. To that end, let us begin our time in prayer and ask for God's blessing to be upon us this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you already for the opportunity to sing those incredible words of praise that we have just heard and participated in singing. It is a blessing to be reminded of how good you are. It is a blessing to be reminded of how faithful you are, how powerful, how powerful you are. God, it's convicting as we as a body sing that we will build our life purely upon your law. As we sing that you are more powerful than anyone else. As we sing that ultimately it is in you we trust. But daily, God, we confess we live in a world in which it is hard to hold fast to those truths. We live in a world that feels far more chaotic. We live in a world that suggests that your power is not all that real. And as we are influenced by that world, it's easy to lose sight of those foundational truths. It's easy to assume we must look elsewhere for success. We must look elsewhere for power and for authority. But as we continue in our study of 1 Timothy today, we are reminded of the foundational realities that are presented to us in this simple but essential discipline of prayer. And God, as we study it this morning, we pray that we all might be humbled that we might be humbled by the realities that Paul speaks of here, that we might be convicted where we have fallen short in placing our faith in you. And might we be encouraged, as ultimately this discipline in this text is a reminder of the fact that we are not in control, but you are God. You are good, and you are compassionate, and you are loving, and you will always stand by your people and deliver us ultimately into your kingdom. Might we trust in that today, God? As always, I pray for any unbeliever who's here, God. I pray the day you might break them of their sin, that you might open up their blind eyes to see your goodness, 
And they might come to understand that regardless of what any political official might argue, that you, God, alone are king. And that it's before you they must submit. And so, God, might they be saved today. And as a result, Lord, might we all rejoice in you, knowing that you are just as faithful and just as powerful today as you always have been. As you always have been. It is that end we pray. And I ask for your blessing upon our time now. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, as our text opens up, it is worth remembering why Paul is writing Timothy. It is worth remembering the significant challenges that Timothy faced. For Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, a place that has been greatly influenced by false teachers, as Pastor Josh has already mentioned, a place where the church therefore faces great potential of division, and on top of all those things, of course, a place that is also influenced by the realities of living in the Roman Empire, a place that was difficult for Christians, a place that presented constant means of persecution, constant reasons for struggling. If you are Timothy facing those significant challenges, then you are no doubt eager to hear from Paul what strategies he would present. You are no doubt eager to hear from Paul what brilliant motivation, what brilliant tactics you can employ to ensure unity in the church, to ensure success to your ministry. And if you are like me, you are perhaps a little surprised to see where Paul begins. For as Paul begins to speak in the face of those great struggles, he begins with this call to pray. And from the very beginning of this text in verses 1 through 2, we see a very practical reason for this prayer, for Paul is telling Timothy, Paul, uh, Timothy must pray in the hope of peace. Again, reading verses 1 through 2 of our text, Paul writes, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. The starting point for Paul here, this call to pray, is again perhaps somewhat of a surprise to many of us, for it seems, it seems a bit obvious, doesn't a bit too easy, a bit too simplistic? For prayer is one of those practices that is so clearly emphasized in every other portion of Scripture. I mean, Paul modeled this prayer routinely in his own ministry. You read throughout all of his epistles, and Paul is constantly talking about how much he prays for them. Paul is regularly asking for them to pray on his own behalf as well. Paul, of course, did not invent, did not create this practice for from the beginning of the church. In passages like Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we see that the church, from its inception, daily devoted themselves to corporate prayer, bring their requests before God, as they did so, they followed after the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who himself routinely got away from the disciples to pray to the Father. We see Jesus instructing his disciples and how they ought to do the same. And indeed, as we read throughout all of Scripture, we see this practice over and over again. We have the book of Psalms, the book that is full of prayers to God. As a result, then, it is perhaps no surprise that this is where Paul begins, for he's simply telling Timothy, the first priority, Timothy, is pray. Now, Paul uses a number of words here to describe these prayers. He speaks of entreaties, as well as prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings, but he's really referring to the same activity, isn't he? When Paul speaks of entreaties or petitions, he's simply encouraging Timothy to bring requests before God, the same type of requests you and I no doubt daily bring before him. He speaks of prayer. He speaks of, of intercession. That is the idea of, of praying for other people. And we see also, of course, this call to offer thanksgiving. 
which again is relatively simplistic, but we understand is, is foundational to our identity, for we are commanded throughout all scripture and all things to rejoice, to daily thank God for what he does. And it is in giving thanks, we are routinely reminding ourselves and those around us of the fact that God is in control. That even in the most difficult of times, God is good, God is worthy to be praised, and God's will is being accomplished. And so from the earliest years that any of us had in the church, we were no doubt instructed to do, in essence, what Paul is instructing Timothy to do. Pray, Timothy. Pray, Ephesian believers. Pray, believers in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. It seems simple enough. seems obvious. Yet the question, of course, is what connection does that prayer have to peace? What connection does this command have to our ability, as Paul is ultimately getting to, of our chance of leading a quiet life of godliness and dignity? Well, of course, it's in answering that question that we see the challenge of this command. For Paul doesn't simply say, Timothy, pray for your friends. Timothy, pray that you all get along together, although that is certainly a prayer. No, Paul is specifically encouraging a very particular prayer list. For he tells Timothy that as he fights this good fight, it is essential that he prays for all people. Namely, pray for kings and all those who are in authority. Now, the language that Paul uses here is relatively generic. That is to say, it, it could describe any number of people in political authority, both locally as well as over the entire empire. But for the people in Paul's day, this title of king... And the concept of authority, of course, would not have sounded vague at all, would it? For when Paul spoke of the king, he was speaking of a very specific, very scary figure to the church. For the king, for whom Paul commands prayer, was Nero. Nero, that tyrannical ruler over the Roman Empire. Uh, that ruler who was hated by many people, both believers as well as unbelievers as well, for, for Nero was unhinged. He was mean. He was cruel and blamed for a number of unjust things that were occurring in that day and age. One of the most famous examples of an activity that happened that caused many to turn against Nero was the great fire in Rome, a fire that caused great destruction and a fire that many citizens blamed Nero on. Nero being the ruler, and needing a little more popularity, of course, sought historically to remove blame from himself. And in a desperate attempt to, to boost his own popularity, the scapegoat he found for that historical event was, of course, the church. And so we see historians write of the fact that Nero historically blamed Christians for these awful things that happened. And in recording that specific event, Tacitus wrote this of Nero says, in order to destroy the rumor, that is, that Nero was to blame, Nero blamed the Christians, who were already hated for their abominations, and punished them with refined cruelty. Now Christ, from whom they take their name, was executed by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. While stopped for a moment, this evil superstition reappeared not only in Judea, where the root of the evil was, but also in Rome. Thus, first those who confessed Christ were arrested, and on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned. I read this quote because I think it's helpful for at least a couple of reasons. One, it, it demonstrates the broad superstition, the broad suspicion that the Romans held for Christians. They were already hated, as Tacitus says. 
for their beliefs were bizarre, they were foreign, but also demonstrates the sort of cruelty those Christians suffered under the hand of their king, Nero. Now, Tacitus uses poetic language describing that treatment, for he speaks of refined cruelty, which makes it sound respectable, but it was far from that. For historians write of how Nero dressed Christians up in the the sheepskin and skins of animals so they could be hunted. He lit Christians on fire. He had them publicly executed as a means of entertaining the masses. So as to, again, remove blame from himself, he, he brutally murdered numerous Christians. Nero was not alone in this treatment, was he? For if you study church history, you understand this, this was kind of the order of the day for the early church. For after Nero was gone, you have other rulers like Domitian that come into power. And in the second century, you have awful rulers like Marcus Aurelius who also suspected the Christians of wrongdoing and saw them as, as utterly moronic in their beliefs and, and worthy of, great, of, of cruel treatment. And speaking of that second century, Christian historian... Gonzalez writes this, under a new persecution, that is, under Marcus Aurelius, we are not told how many Christians died, but one letter does state that the place where Christians were being held became so full that some died of suffocation before executioners could even get to them. If you were a Christian in the early church then, and you heard the authority of a king, or you heard someone describe political rulers, this is the reality of the political rulers that you lived under. They were cruel. They hated you. They were far from the type of people that would naturally come to your mind when you're told, who would you like to pray for today? And yet it is here that Paul begins the call to pray. Now before answering the question why, I think it's worth noting that while we do not live under similar circumstances today, we still understand the reality of living under rulers that we don't necessarily love. I don't want to ask for a show of hands here, but I suspect this is the case for every believer in every single generation. There are rulers that we live under who will do wretched things, who will do things that we know are unbiblical, and who will therefore present themselves as people that we'd rather not discuss. And so like those early believers, we must ask, why then, Paul, must we pray for them? What does our prayers for them have anything to do with peace? Well, the connection there, that link, is again found in verse 2. We are told to pray for these kings who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. The reason why we must pray for these people the reason why Christians had to pray for Nero and why we must still pray for, say, Biden or any president we live under today is the same reason. It's for peace. Now, this peace can be seen both from a spiritual perspective as well as from a practical. Spiritually, as we'll see from our text, as we pray for our leaders, we are first and foremost praying for their salvation. Paul makes this abundantly clear later on in our text when he speaks of the fact that God saves all, that God's desire is that all men are to be saved. So we pray for godless leaders to become godly. Thus we pray for their own spiritual peace with Christ. But we also pray for practical peace. That is to say, we pray that even if they are not believers, they might rule in a way that that encourages peace, that encourages justice. We pray this in part because this is a benefit to the nation as a whole. But we pray this also because we understand 
There in verse 2, that if we are to live quiet and godly lives, that living in a peaceful land is to our own benefit as well. This is very clear. And it's something that is not unique to Paul, for as you read throughout all of Scripture, you see this is the regular pattern of behavior of God's people. That is both prayer, but also prayer for those in authority. You read throughout the Old Testament, and you see that, that the people of God have always understood, first and foremost, that the heart of kings is in the hand of God, therefore he can turn it any way he chooses. But you read also, they then understand it's their role to pray for these leaders. And so whether it's a godly man like David, or godless leaders like Cyrus, that they still pray. They understand that they are in positions of authority, therefore they matter, and therefore Christians must pray. Paul says we pray to that end here, so that, again in verse 2, we as believers may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In the face of the chaos that Timothy was facing, Paul commands this prayer so that Timothy can remain focused on the mission. In describing that lifestyle, that mission, Paul again uses this language of, of tranquility, of quietness. Tranquility that leads to a life of godliness, a life of dignity. As Christians, it should not be too hard to understand where this tranquility and where this quietness comes from. For we, of all people, understand that regardless of how chaotic life might seem, that our God still sits enthroned. That our God's plan is still being executed to perfection. And nothing is out of the order then. And so we understand that just as Paul commands here, he commands earlier in 2 Thessalonians. If you just look back at 2 Thessalonians 3, 12-13, you see this similar language of the Christian lifestyle. There Paul wrote, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion, eat their own bread, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Paul says something similar earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul wrote, or verse 11, Paul writes, we urge you, brethren, to excel still more, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend your own business, work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. The command in Thessalonians and the command in Timothy is, is quite simple. It's that command to live a life that routinely demonstrates the fact that we are not scared. That we're not fearful like the, word is, like the world is fearful. We are confident because we know the king. And we're confident because we know the king's calling that he has given to us. And so ruled by that sense of confidence, we then live out lives that are marked by godliness that is the spiritual disciplines that we know all so well, that we speak of, of a high character, and that we live a life that is marked with dignity. And as we'll soon see, it's that, that outward showing of dignity that is so important to Paul, for he is very concerned that in the midst of the chaos that Timothy is facing, that the church is losing their witness. The church is failing to remember how they're supposed to interact with the world around them. For they are called to live a life that is admirable, in the eyes of unbelievers. That is marked by beauty, that is marked by self-control, that is marked by love and grace and patience. And because of the frustrations that they are facing in this church, it seems that patience, that grace, is being overlooked. And so Paul says, Timothy, you must return to that lifestyle. But in order to return to that lifestyle of peace, well, you must be certain that you are praying. 
For just as we are called in Romans to live at peace with all men so far as it depends upon us, we are equally called to pray for all men. You cannot have one without the other. So we pray. We pray in the hope that God would bring about peace. We pray for our political rulers. They might come to Christ. We pray for our rulers that they might rule in a way that is pleasing to God. And in a response, we pray these things so that we can maintain this focus on the peaceful calling that we have. It's a relatively straightforward and simple calling. But I understand it is still difficult, isn't it? From the midst of praying these things, it still is hard to see God answering our prayers for order at times. Again, put yourself in the place of these early Christians in Ephesus. Christians praying for hundreds of years for peace, for godly rulers, and for hundreds of years they have rulers that kill them. For hundreds of years they have people that despise Christ. Well, in the midst of that frustration, both then and now, the question, of course, is why then must we still continue to pray? If practically it's not working, well, then why else does this prayer remain so essential? It's to that end that we see the second reason for this prayer, that reason that's spoken of for the sake of our own growth in godliness. Follow along with me again in 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. There Paul says this, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. As Paul continues to explain why we must pray for all people, namely, why we must pray for those who are in authority over us, Paul speaks of this second reason, which reminds us of, of two truths of God. The first being that, that God is king. It is God that we seek to please. Again, there in verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. To a certain extent, believer, we should need no other reason. We should need no additional motivation other than this fact that this is pleasing to God. Regardless of how else we might feel about this practice, regardless of how pointless it might seem at times, well, we know we must do it because God wants us to do it, because God is pleased. If you are a parent of young kid, you know how oftentimes you know that I have told your kid, the reason why you have to do something is because I said so. Obey my word, daughter, because I said so. Obey my word, son, because I said so. I've never said that to my kids, but I'm sure you have to your own. On a certain level, as parental authority, that should be enough. The same is true when it comes to our God. We are to do everything for his glory and his glory alone. That is our constant calling. And therefore, as we do this, we are reminded that we serve a higher authority. We pray for our earthly king because our godly divine king commands it, and it pleases him. That alone, again, should provide sufficient motivation. Yet that is not the only reason why Paul, why, what Paul cites in his command. For he doesn't simply speak of, of God as being our, our ruler, does he? Look again at verse 3 and 4 and how Paul is describing God. He says, this is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. As Paul continues to explain why we must pray this way, he reminds us that the God that we are serving is a God who himself is deeply compassionate and is characterized in this text as a Savior, as the Redeemer, 
to a certain extent, if, if you've read through the epistles of Paul, this should be no surprise, for this is the language that Paul so oftentimes begins his epistles with. We've already seen this in 1 Timothy, have we not? For throughout the first chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul has expounded upon that grace, that saving work of God and his son, Jesus Christ. You read other epistles and you see the same thing time and time again. Philippians 1, Paul immediately begins with a reminder of the gospel. Immediately begins with that reminder that he who began a good work in you, that is salvation, will continue to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, Paul speaks of this reality of the work of God, the grace of God. Titus, as we'll reflect on here in a moment, Paul speaks of the grace that has appeared to all men. Peter does the same thing in his opening words as he speaks to the blood of Christ that has been shed. Regardless of the problems that Paul faced, regardless of the grandeur and the complexity that these churches faced, Paul routinely starts with the same reminder. God is our savior. God is loving. God is compassionate. And in case it is not clear enough with this language of God being our savior, Paul adds this additional language that says we do this because God desires all men to be saved. Now, at first glance, this language might sound a bit confusing to some of us. Certainly me growing up, God was loving, yes, but God was really more scary than anything else. God was judge. God was going to send people to hell. God was wrathful. That is the image of God I carried with me throughout much of my childhood. So you served God because, quite frankly, you were terrified of God. And yet, while it is true that God is wrathful, that God condemns, that God judges sin, it is equally true, and if not more emphasized throughout all Scripture, that God is a God of compassion, a God of love. If you read through the gospel accounts, you see that clear language on display in the ministry of Christ. If you've been with us in our small group study, we've been going through parables, and so oftentimes Jesus is highlighting that that unbelievable grace that is shown to those outside to be welcomed in. You hear it in the language of the prodigal son and how the father welcomes him back. The father, of course, being an image of of God, of of his love. Jesus' own ministry and the triumphal entry in Luke Use the same type of language used to describe God, to describe Jesus Christ. For after the triumphal entry, in Luke chapter 19, I think I have the right reference there, you see Jesus looking upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that is about to reject Jesus Christ, and yet how does he view it? He weeps. For he longs to see them come to him. He longs for them to respond appropriately. And while we might be tempted to assume that that compassion is reserved only for the character of God the Son, we read throughout the Old Testament that God is equally a God of compassion there, a God of love, a God of grace. For very famously, in passages like Ezekiel 33, we read this, verse 11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked turn back from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? You read in the story of Hosea, similar language, where God is compassionately pleading for his people to come. Time and time and time again, you see this clear picture. A picture of a God who creates, a God who loves, a God who is compassionate, a God who is kind. 
That is the God that we please. Of course, in in using this language, and as we jump back to 1 Timothy, the challenge is still there. For for Paul writes that God desires all men to be saved, but, but we know all men are not saved. Certainly countless individuals will go to hell for all eternity. So if God is compassionate, if he does desire all men to be saved, well then, why does evangelism matter? Why, why does anyone remain unsaved? Now that is a debate that is far too big for us to, to fully explain this morning. I think it's worth noting and, and understanding that while the Bible speaks of God's desire for men to be saved, that is the the Bible speaks of God's moral will. The Bible still also speaks of God's sovereign will. That idea that while God desires one thing, ultimately his perfect will is executed. He sovereignly plans things out. So God desires people to be obedient. But of course that obedience doesn't happen. That doesn't mean his plan is thwarted. No, his plan still succeeds. For those two wills simultaneously exist. God's moral desire, God's providential sovereign will. Again, time does not suffice to to get into it, but you consider, for instance, just the example of the death of Jesus Christ as an example of both these wills on display. From passages like Acts chapter 2, you have this reminder of both wills. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of a godless man, by the, by the hands of godless men, and put him to death. The story of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the greatest example of both these wills on display. For we can simultaneously say that the men who crucified Christ were wicked, they were going against the moral will of God. And yet, at the same time, they were fulfilling God's perfect, predetermined, provisional will. And so we see both those things on display, both God's wills being ultimately seen. Truth be told, of course, we cannot fully understand this. But the point that Paul makes here is not a point that's intended to fully explain it, for he is simply pointing us back to that reality of of God's moral will, of God's desire, of God's compassion. And as such, as we read this, our minds go to language like that in Deuteronomy 29. For Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, we read this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us, to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Here's the reason why I think it's important to get in all this and and why I see the language of Deuteronomy connected to 1 Timothy. The reason is simple. There are things that go on in our world that you and I will never understand. There are elements of God's sovereign will that are hidden from us, beyond our comprehension. I do not know why God allowed Nero to kill countless Christians. I don't get it. I don't know why God still chooses to use godless people throughout the world today who treat his people with utter disdain and cruelty. I don't know. I don't know why God elects some, but not others. I don't know. But here's what we do know. We know that God is compassionate. We know God is kind. That God is loving. We know that God cares for all people. And so our application of that, of course, is, do we? 
Are we like God in that compassion? Are we willing to pray for these unbelievers knowing, even if we might not like them, that God's love is still offered to them and therefore, in order to be like God, in order to be conformed more to the image of his son, we must pray for them. We must love them. We must desire that which is best for them. Herein lies, I think, one of the the greatest benefits and one of the greatest reasons why we must pray for people like this. And it's for the purpose that we are daily confronted with the fact that we are not like God. But we need to grow more. For us who have been in the faith for any amount of time, this should be nothing new to us. For daily as we pray in the way that Jesus commands us to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for God's kingdom. But we acknowledge daily that sometimes God's will is confusing to us. Yet we still pray it. And we still thank God for it. So too, when we pray for our leaders, even if we might struggle with it, we pray for them. We pray for peace. And as we pray for peace, we are reminded daily how distant we still are to the perfect love of God. We are reminded daily of how much room there is for growth for each of us. And so if Timothy is to remain focused on the mission, if you and I are to be remain focused on the lifestyle that God has called us to live, we pray in the same way today. We pray and hope that God will bring about peace, but we pray knowing full well that this is also a tool that God is using to shape your heart and mind. That God is reminding us just how radical his love is for humanity. In fact, it's that same love that leads us into the third and final reason why we must pray in this way. For having spoken of the hope that we have for peace, that need we have for that practical peace, having spoken of our need for ongoing growth and godliness, Paul finally reminds us that this prayer is essential for the purpose of maintaining a a focus on the gospel. It is that gospel that we close with in verse 5 and 6. Four, there is one God, One mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Here, Paul returns to that point that will remain his central theme in all of his writing. Here, Paul returns to the foundational reason why we must pray in this way. The reason being is the gospel, Timothy. You pray in this way because as you do, you are proclaiming the gospel to the world and you're proclaiming the gospel to yourself as well. For as we pray for those in authority over us, as we pray for this chaotic world, we are reminding ourselves these central truths that have always been true in Scripture. Those truths that begin with the declaration that there is one God that central claim that can be found back in Deuteronomy 6.4, that Shema prayer, listen, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's the same central and unchanging truth that Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians. From 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you see Paul speaking equally to that central truth in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5 and 6. There Paul wrote, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, Indeed, there are many gods, many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist in him. One Lord Jesus Christ, from whom are all things, we exist through him. The reason why we need to hear that there is one God is the same reason why Israel needed to hear that there was one God. The same reason why Corinth needed to hear that there was one God. The same reason why Ephesus needed to hear that there was one God is because we live in a world that constantly forgets this fact. 
We live in a world in which people are arguing for a multitude of so-called gods, of rulers, of authorities they're pointing to. A world in which people will say, it's okay that you have your God over there, but just believe me, you also need this. It's okay, Christian, that you have your God, but we still need our political leaders. We still got to put faith in them. People worship and follow after any number of false gods, whether they be the gods of other religions or the gods of wealth, the gods of of sex, the gods of family, whatever it is, there are countless idols in our culture that people follow after, and yet Paul reminds us there's one God. He rules over everyone. He alone demands allegiance. Not only that fact, but as we continue to expound upon that gospel, Paul reminds us there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Just as Paul reminds us there is one God, he reminds us there is one Savior. And as he describes that Savior, he speaks of his roles as both mediator and ransom. To describe Jesus as as the mediator between God and man, Paul is reminding Timothy and us of that covenantal language. And that language that reminds us that God has this one plan, God has this one covenant, and Jesus Christ alone is the key to that covenant. You can read much more of that if you look through the book of Hebrews We can read it in part in Hebrews chapter 8. In Hebrews chapter 8, the author there says this of that covenant. But now, he that is Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on a better promise. This language of mediator and, and, and covenant I think is particularly important in Paul's day and Timothy's day because it seems the false teacher in Ephesus were teachers coming out of of some sort of Jewish background. And so they no doubt were quoting the law extensively to the people in the church, trying to show them that they needed their particular and unique vantage points on the Old Testament law, on the covenant of Moses, in order to obtain righteousness. But as Paul reminds, reminds Timothy, no, their teaching is worthless, for they speak of a lesser covenant, They speak of a law they know nothing about. We have the lawgiver. We have the one mediator, Jesus Christ, who instilled this new covenant, and it is by that covenant that we are saved. Thus, it is only by Christ, only on Christ, we remain focused. Just as he reminds us that Jesus is that mediator, he reminds us of how Christ mediated that covenant, how Christ brought it into existence. He does so in that language of ransom, which is another way of speaking of of a payment. This is something, again, Paul and so many New Testament authors constantly point to as a reminder of the cost of our faith, the cost of that covenant, which wasn't just some ratification of a new bill, but it was the blood of the Son of God. It is by his blood that the covenant is created. That covenant, that blood that we will celebrate and remember this morning as we take part in communion. For Timothy to remain focused on the gospel, it was essential that he remembers that fact, That the bar cannot be set any higher than it was with Jesus Christ. The cost cannot be any more costly than it was with Christ. It was that payment that was made. And a payment that's not just open to Jews. Not just open to those people that are already on the inside. But as Paul once again reminds Timothy and reminds us, it is a payment that is made open to all. Blood that is so powerful that it can save the Israelite. It can save 
the Gentile like Timothy. It can save Nero. It can save the most godless, wicked human being you could possibly imagine. And if that's not powerful enough for you, it can save you. And it saves me. Because truth be told, we are just as wicked and godless as anyone else. Just as undeserving of God's mercy as anyone else. And if God can save you, brother and sister, if God can save me, then certainly God can save anyone he chooses. And so Paul reminds Timothy, this is why we pray this way, for we're reminding ourselves of the gospel. The gospel that speaks of the oneness of God. The the gospel that speaks of, of the reality of one mediator. And the gospel that reminds us that it and it alone is God's plan. We see that in that final phrase. Who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Throughout the New Testament, throughout all of Scripture, we see the plan of God referred to and summarized as this, this unfolding narrative that God has written on high. This unfolding narrative that can be broken up in various chapters. Now, God has spoken to us in former times in one way, but God has spoken ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. It is a plan, it is a narrative that at times seems utterly chaotic and confusing. Yet, as unpredictable as it might seem to us throughout the course of history, We are reminded in passages like Acts chapter 17, this fact in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed time, the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each and every one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, we are all his children. There are countless moments in history when it would appear as if things have gone off the tracks. When it would appear as if we need to introduce a new narrative, a new plan, and yet time and time again, what Paul and the apostles and all of God's people have always understood is that it's always according to plan. The gospel was the plan from the beginning, and it is the plan for all eternity. And so to forget that plan is to ignore the fact of history and the fact of God's rule and authority. And it is thus the reason why we continue to pray in this manner. We pray for those in authority because in the face of all chaos, in the face of a world that hates us, prayer is that tool which reminds us daily that God alone can bring about peace. And so we pray, God, give us peace. Prayer is the one discipline or one of the many disciplines that we have that daily helps conform and shape our hearts to become more like God. And so we pray for the heathens. We pray for the godless. As we do so, we are reminded, God, you are a God of compassion. God, you make your love available to them. God, please make me more like you. God, please make me more loving. Save them and give me more of a desire to see them saved. And we pray in this manner because as we do, we're reminded that regardless of how things might look, the gospel is still being presented. And God's rule and authority is still ultimately solid and secure. And so, believer, we pray in this way for the same reasons today. So that we might experience the peace that can only come about by God's hands, so that we might look more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, and so we might daily be reminded of these deep gospel truths. Here in a moment, we'll have a great opportunity to do this corporately after prayer as we take communion. 
And so after I pray, I encourage all of you who are believers to come forward, to take the cracker and juice, to sit down and wait to take it together corporately. For as we do so, we are proclaiming exactly that which we're supposed to proclaim in our prayer. That regardless of whatever else divides us, we are ultimately united on this fact that we all serve the one true king, Jesus Christ. And as long as he sits enthroned in heaven, we can rest. We can feel secure. And so we gather and we pray for our leaders. We pray for this world. We pray the gospel might be proclaimed and we do so as a unified body. For those of you who are unbelievers this morning, I encourage you to, to refrain from taking part in communion and simply take this moment and consider the offer of the gospel, that it is offered to you regardless of your background. Come and rejoice and repent of your sins. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and you too can be saved. If you have any questions about that, please let me know. I'd be happy to talk with you afterwards, but let us pray now and then I invite brothers and sisters to come forward and take part. But let us follow the words of Paul now as we close. Father in heaven, we come to you because you are our king. We come knowing there is one God and one Savior, your son, Jesus Christ. And we praise you, Jesus, for we know we are all undeserving of your mercy and yet you've shown it to us, God. You have opened up our eyes. Holy Spirit, we praise you for that work of regeneration. And we trust you, God, knowing that we are dependent upon you for wisdom. We're dependent upon you for order. We're dependent upon you for the installation of justice and peace. And God, we come to you because we live in a world that so oftentimes feels utterly absent of that peace. We look at the wars breaking out all over right now. We think of Israel. We think of the great division in our own nation at times. And God, we are challenged to see your hand at work. Yet we know you are sovereign. And so we follow the words of Paul to Timothy, even this morning, and we pray for the leaders you've put over us, God. We pray for President Biden, for Vice President Harris. We know that even if we might not approve of, of things they do, that God, ultimately, they're under your hand. And so we pray for their salvation, God. Knowing that we were no more deserving of your grace than they might be. And so we pray for, for them. First, to know you, but also to rule in a way that is pleasing to you might use them and our many other leaders to pass laws that are in accordance with Scripture, might use them and many others to help instill peace in our nation. We thank you for the men and women who, who serve us, who are already saved, and pray that you use them in a mighty way in their positions of authority. We pray for them both nationally and locally as well. And we pray that all these things happen so that more might be saved and so that we might be focused on the calling you've given us, God. We are but your humble servants, Father. And so might we respond daily in peace and trust in you. Might respond in a unified manner remembering that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have ultimately this in common, the gospel. Shape our hearts to be more like you daily, God. Cause us to be more loving, God. Cause us to be more just and holy, God. And in so doing, use us to proclaim that perfect gospel plan, that perfect gospel message, so that more and more might come to bend the knee before your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.